Hi, Homecoming listeners, and thanks so much for tuning back in. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experience, and insights about a whole bunch of different topics. I'm one of your co-hosts, Angel Rina. And I'm your co-host, Emily. This week, we've got a big episode for you. So today we'll be discussing Hindutva, Indian Prime Minister Modi's regime, and what one Yale student-founded organization is doing to combat and educate people about fascism and extreme Hindu nationalism. So joining us today are Shriya Singh, Lakshmi Amin, and Ram Vishwanathan. Shriya, Lakshmi, and Ram, thank you so much for being on this episode. This is one that we've really been looking forward to for so long, and we know it's going to be such an educational experience for both Emily and me and the listeners. So first, would you guys mind telling us more about yourselves? And each of you can introduce where you're from, where you call home, and anything else you feel like you want the listeners to know about you. Sure. Um, my name is Shriya Singh. Thank you both for having uh, all of us. I'm super excited about this. Um, I was born in Ahmedabad, India, and I now live in Florida with my family. I'm a rising senior at Yale studying history and South Asian studies, and uh, I'm the founder of Sahi. Uh, super excited to be talking about it today with everyone. Hi, again. Thank you guys so much for having us. Um, my name is Lakshmi. I'm a rising, oh yeah, I guess I'm a rising senior, that's so weird to say at Yale, um, I'm majoring <laughs> in ethnicity, race, and migration, and I'm from the eastern Ohio slash uh, greater Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and I'm super excited to to talk with you guys and to just learn from uh, Shreya and Ram today, too. Hi, um, I'm Ram. I'm also a rising senior at Yale. Um, I was born in the U.S., but I spent most of my childhood in Bangalore, India, uh, which is where I'd consider home. And I, I'm in the BA, BA MA program in history, and I'm just really excited to share and to learn um, about this topic. Amazing. Thank you, guys. And we've got a lot to talk about today, so let's just jump right into the questions. So basically everything that we'll be discussing today on the podcast essentially centers on Hindutva, which is a fascist political ideology that is an extreme form of Hindu nationalism and seeks to make India a state of and for Hindus. So would any of you guys be able to speak more about Hindutva, maybe go more into detail into what it exactly is, its origins, and what the ideology proposes and seeks to do? I guess I think it's important to start off by saying that you know, un under its constitution, India is a, a secular, socialist, and democratic state, um, which means that in India uh, accepts equal citizenship for people irregardless, regardless of their religious uh, origin. <coughs> and and I guess to understand Hindutva, you have to understand how this particular tenet of the constitution is is not something. Um, is, is, is something that goes against the core idea of an ethnocentric nation as opposed to a nation that is at least in its constitution um, open for all. And so I think Hindutva was first coined in the 1920s um, by certain thinkers who opposed um, a sort of big tent 
um, secular ideologies of the Indian National Congress during the independence struggle. Um, and I guess for a long while, Hindutva um, or, or various forms of Hindu nationalism were quite fringe political ideologies in India. Um, they they really came onto the political scene, I guess, after the emergency, um, which was a sort of imposition of, um, which was an imposition of a form of martial law and a suspension of democratic liberties in the 1970s that really allowed, um, by the Indian National Congress, that really allowed certain opposition parties, um, in, in particular the BJP, which is um, the, the main political driver of Hindutva today, to, to sort of mobilize at the grassroots and, and enter the national consciousness in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and they've been in power since 2014 today, or uh, since 2014, and in, in many ways it's marked a new age in Hindutva and, and what they seek to do. I think it's also really important to note here that, especially in an American context, Hindutva and Hinduism often get confused, but whereas Hinduism is explicitly a religion practiced by billions, um, Hindutva is a political ideology um, and is divorced from the faith in the sense that it has been used for political purposes and has a vision of India that is expressly one that excludes those who are of lower castes, who are of um, any sort of uh, religious minority that doesn't fit in with the Hindutva vision um, and is also something that has drawn inspiration from German Nazism from the 1920s. So there are ties uh, between Hindutva ideology and Nazi ideology, which gives us a sort of background in terms of thinking about Hindutva as this alt-right fascist political vision, uh, which is now kind of wreaking havoc um, in in the sort of Indian secular uh, democratic constitution and uh, the values that the country was initially founded on. Thank you for making that distinction clear, Shriya. Yeah, it's really important to know that Hinduism and Hindutva are two separate things. Ram, you spoke a little bit about this, but um, like from what I've read, the Hindutva ideology is closely tied to both the BJP and the RSS. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the RSS is an organization that fully embraces extreme, sometimes paramilitary Hindu nationalism, and the BJP is the political arm of the RSS. Like Ram said, the BJP was actually considered a fringe movement as recently as the 1990s, but now it's a mainstream political party. In fact, it's the current ruling party in India, and the current Prime Minister, Modi, is a member of the BJP. I was wondering if any of you could speak on the founding of the RSS and the BJP, and what has caused their recent rise in political power. Like, how did it change from something that was on the fringe to something that's so mainstream now? Sure. So the RSS is considered the parent organization or umbrella organization of a number of different organizations that are Hindu nationalist political groups. One of those happens to be the BJP. The RSS itself draws inspiration from thinkers like Savarkar and Goldwalker, who are both um, Indian thinkers and writers who have envisioned different forms of Hindu nationalism and extremist views that espouse violence in certain cases and in other cases, a vision of 
India that excludes the minorities that we've already mentioned. That was kind of the founding of the RSS. The BJP um, is a an organization that has kind of sprung off from that uh, original parent organization. Uh, and in some cases, they tend to campaign together and still have very close ties, especially when it comes down to their youth wings and et cetera. Um, and there's there's a lot to be said as well about how the RSS has existed in um, also the form of providing social services and welfare in a lot of areas, which is a common tactic of organizations that espouse certain radical views um, in terms of recruiting through that and also gaining support locally um, at, at a grassroots level by tactics, uh, through tactics like that. I guess another way of, of thinking of the relationship between these two is, is to think of, is, is to note that the RSS was founded in 1925, while the BJP was founded in 1980. Um, and so the RSS has in many ways understood that the key to transforming or gaining power over a country is not merely contesting political elections, um, but also to um, to change a country's culture at its grassroots. It, it, it declares itself as a cultural organization of which the BJP is its political wing. Um, and in, in many ways, sort of understanding Hindutva, understanding Hindu, Hindu nationalism requires thinking beyond, um, beyond political structures, beyond elected political officials. Um, I think sort of the wave of Hindu nationalism we've seen since 2014 um, has been made possible by the fact that, that, uh, that figures and, 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 and a, a whole party infrastructure that is sympathetic to these ideals has been in power and 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 they've passed laws and and you know used used a capture of power in many ways to um to spread their ideology but this has also been been sort of going on behind the scenes um in, in a way that transcends you know your your political election every 5 years Absolutely. And it, the relationship is also quite interesting because while the RSS used to do political work, it's actually been banned from entering politics multiple times. Um, I, I believe it's about three times, but I'm not entirely sure if that's the correct number. Um, mm -hmm. And so one one of those instances was because of the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, which um, the RSS was associated with. Um, and it's interesting because while the BJP is closely affiliated, it is a separate entity in the sense that it doesn't carry those same political restrictions that the RSS has had um, placed on it multiple times throughout uh, post-independent uh, Indian history. Yeah, and I, I honestly am still um, learning more about Indian political history, but correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I'm pretty sure Modi was a member of the RSS as a young person. Um, and I think as someone coming to a lot of this information um, is new to me, it's just really interesting to track some of the pipelines that you see between these different groups um, and just tracking different figures entering at certain points and how these relationships really are networks that develop across the globe. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think something, something new or something different about this current political regime is that um, in, in many ways, it's returned to core RSS ideologies and has members 
who have previously been RSS members in a way that was not often always the case with the BJP. The BJP often combined RSS cadres with um, with people who were not affiliated with the RSS, who um, were perhaps broadly economically or politically conservative. And for, for a while, the BJP sort of maintained some sort of, if, if not a balance, um, it, it was far less vocal in espousing certain core ideologies about who belongs in India and who doesn't that have really come to the fore over the past five or six years. So before the BJP, the Indian Congress Party was the dominant political group and ruled India for a really long time. And the Congress Party is more of a left-wing group, to my understanding. So there was obviously this shift on a political level, on an institutional level. But did you also notice the large shift on a grassroots level, too, of like more Indians beginning to subscribe to the Hindutva ideology? I, I think I think there are a lot of ways to think about this, but for one, if, if you look at like a real grassroots level, the, the Congress, the Indian National Congress was the main what was the main party that advocated for and won independence from the British Empire and they carried on that grassroots political network for many decades after independence. Um, I think over, over time, however, that that sort of um, that sort of grassroots presence has really shrunk, has really deteriorated, um, and mm-hmm. to sort of fill in its place, um, you've had more conservative, more right wing. Um, you've had basically the Hindu right sort of step in at a grassroots level and find real resonance amongst everyday Indians. Um, and, and that steps, it stems from, you know, a broad ideological campaign to, to normalize the idea that India is a Hindu, uh, Hindu nation. It's come from, you know, political corruption amongst the Congress. It's come from, I guess, deep economic and social inequalities that, um, that for all the Congress's progressivism, it was in many ways unable to solve. And in, in many ways, there are a lot of different threads that explain why, you know, a center-left party has given way to a far-right party. Thank you so much. Um, and the next question we have, so what are some specific things that Modi's administration has done to show that they are fully pushing and subscribing to this Hindutva ideology? For example, um, so in a New Yorker article that my Yale first year counselor Serbi sent me, um, shout out to Serbi, it mentions that BJP leaders have been rewriting school textbooks to erase Islamic history. They're changing names of cities and railway stations to ones that are Hindu influenced. They're demolishing mosques. And there's also India's imperialist relationship with Kashmir and the passing of the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, this past December. And so if you guys want to talk about any of those and maybe bring up other things that Modi's administration has done recently to show that they're really subscribing to this ideology, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think there's here, there are just so many examples and they function at multiple levels. I think 
One of that being just a general shift in the way that we talk about Indian history and culture. One of the things that the Modi administration has done in a sort of concentrated effort is start talking about Indian history, especially the period of Mughal rule in India as a sort of occupation. And then in the sense, then frame what's happening right now with Islamophobia and the rise of uh, the population of uh, the demographic proportion of Indian Muslims, frame that as something that harkens back to the time of what they call was Mughal occupation or imperialism and this sort of rhetoric about kicking out the outsiders, whereas these people um, and Muslims, but also so many other uh, caste minorities and Adivasi groups and uh, tribal groups have been integral to India and the subcontinent for as far back as we can go in history. But then on top of that, that kind of cultural and historiographic shift has also um, bled into a sort of uh, decay in institutions that are meant to protect minorities and to protect the values of the constitution. One of those being the Supreme Court itself. Um, we've seen things like mosques be demolished and religious sites that are very important to certain groups being uh, demolished because of claims about what they mean to Hinduism and this sort of um, assault on the civil liberties and rights of minorities in India. And obviously the most clear example of that is the Citizenship of Amendment Act and the NRC, which when combined do put um, so many millions of people at risk of losing their citizenship, not just based on their minority status, but also based on class um, and other intersectional factors. Um, but also this functions in a unique way with Kashmir. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, Hindutva is a problem in itself, but the problem of Kashmir has existed separately and independently long before that and will continue to exist um, if we do not focus on it as a problem in itself. Uh, what's happened right now is that there's a lockdown, an abrogation of um, the promised rights for the largest uh, the largest or Muslim majority uh, state in India, which would be Kashmir. And that is one of the clearest indications that this administration um, does not care about protecting the rights of all people in India, but rather pushing a vision that um, that raises the both political power and influence of upper caste Hindu and predominantly patriarchal powers in India. Yeah, and going back to this question of the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was passed in December, um, something that I, at the time, found like really interesting was just looking at how the administration responded to the like pretty immediate pushback to that act. Well, it was, I mean, people were protesting it when it was a bill and, and um, even more so after it was an act. And it was so like, like uh, eerie to see the statements that were being put out by the government, um, as Shreya said, reframing this in a way that makes the government look benevolent. And because um, I think I, I saw a lot of material that was claiming that this is actually helping religious minorities from surrounding countries um, to kind of distract from the fact from the fact that it was really trying that it was its aim was to um, in part like dispossess Muslim people. So even like at a rhetorical level, there's a lot of like reframing going on that. Um, that I've seen, like, in terms of our own organization, just, like, in general, a lot of people are buying into. Um, I remember looking at a lot of the, like, 
Instagram posts and Facebook posts that were going around at the time and are still going around and seeing the comment section just flooded with like, oh, but look, the government said this. It said that we're like actually helping people. Are you against the government helping people? So there's a lot of like rhetorical reframing that's just like really disturbing to see unfold. It's just like symptomatic and reflective of like the the ideology as a whole. Um, Lakshmi, you you briefly mentioned a little bit of what the CAA was about, but do any of you guys want to talk a little bit more about what exactly the NRC and the Citizenship Amendment Act, what they exactly did and what they say? Yeah, I guess you can understand it. You can under, you have to understand the NRC and the CAA together in some ways, and that it's a sort of two-pronged attack on what Lakshmi and Shri have been talking about, which is the sort of marking out of the minority Muslim population as an other and as an other that can be targeted for political gain. And so what the what the NRC says is is basically the NRC was first implemented um in the northeastern state of Assam, which borders um the the, the country of Bangladesh, and which um and, and which has been subject to a lot of um, a lot of hysteria or, or multiple claims about how there has been an infiltration of um, Bangladeshi Muslim uh, immigrants into the country. And so the NRC is a sort of national registry of citizens, um, which asks, which places the burden of proving citizenship um, not on the government, but on the on the citizen themselves. The citizen doesn't become someone whose citizenship has to be proven wrong. The citizen becomes a petitioner who has to prove that they were in the country before a certain date, um, but also that their parents were in the country as well. Um, and, and therefore, every single Indian, it, it, it initially began in Assam, but uh, the, the whole furore has been that it has not only been implemented in Assam, but now is going to be implemented nationwide effectively subjects every Indian citizen to a citizenship test um, that if they have documents that, that, that prove certain criteria that the government wants them to prove, they're, 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 they, they can be counted as citizens. If, they, if they're not, they will be marked as doubtful citizens. Um, many, many people who have not been able to furnish these documents are currently sort of housed in detention centers. Um, and, and I guess where the CAA comes in is that it takes the citizenship test and filters it on the basis of religion by, by I guess, making an argument that certain communities have more of a stake in India or are more natural citizens of India than others. And so when you basically combine the CAA and the NRC together, the NRC applies the citizenship test and the CAA says that sort of non-citizens who are or non-citizens from neighboring these three neighboring countries of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, who are not Muslim, i.e. if they are Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Parsi, Jain, or Christian, will be given expedited citizenship into India. And, and I guess what this means in the case of the NRC is that only a Muslim can therefore fail the citizenship test because a non-Muslim has this sort of, has the CA as a sort of backup option. And so the, the fear this caused among so much of us was that this was basically laying the path for, you know, a mass project of statelessness um, that was, you know, going to be religiously determined. Hmm. 
So what kind of media is the BJP putting out there in regards to Muslims and people or organizations that are anti-BJP? I, I think one sort of, there have been a lot of discursive uses or, or, or sort of real ways of, of framing political opposition in, in sort of very dangerous ways. I think one, for example, has been this idea that if you oppose the government, you are not, not just a, a, a political opponent, but an opponent to the very to the very country. It's sort of a very sort of a very high octave nationalism that um, that really demands allegiance from its citizens. Another form in which the state has really spread dangerous narratives is, of course, in Islamophobic narratives. I think Shriya and Lakshmi have mentioned them. Um, but in, in during the pandemic, for example, um, a real hashtag that was spread around a lot was this idea of Corona Jihad, mm-hmm. um, or the idea that Muslims were intentionally trying to spread the coronavirus. Again, fitting into this idea of Muslims as undesirable, as others, as dangerous, um, and, and effectively as unwanted in the nation. Um, and it's really reached quite a frightening level. Um, and there have been cases where, you know, people have called for violence against Muslims, for even mass extermination of Muslims. Um, that, you know, given, given the, the type of historical circumstances or the historical examples we've seen in the past is really, um, is really something that shows us to our very bones. Definitely. And um, this is not a new precedent at all, which Ram has pointed out. I mean, even the current Home Minister of India, which is one of the highest positions in the government, Amit Shah, has used the word termites to describe Muslims, um, which all of us know is one of the early signs of otherizing a community by analogizing them to insects or invaders. That kind of rhetoric has been very common in government officials and representatives of the BJP, sort of normalizing, um, referring to Muslim communities as other in daily discourse. Right, yeah. And when like all of these different media outlets and for example, like those controlled by the government and like what the like the rhetoric that gover- that the government puts out, like that's how I feel like people and citizens start believing as the truth, right? And like how they begin to see their world. Um, Ram, you might know a little more about this, but how do you feel like social media has played a role into how the BJP is spreading its rhetoric? I think there was I think the best way I could I could explain this is to like refer to a comment um this man Amit Shah who's the home minister of India probably considered the second most powerful man in India uh, a comment he made last year before the 2019 elections which is where he said that using our social media machinery we can convince the Indian population of any truth we can make up our truths and convince people of anything, whether it is in 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 essence true or false, mm-hmm. and so in in some ways there's a, there's a sort of an existential threat that the idea of truth faces, where the BJP has such um, a vast political machinery, particularly on social media, but also on TV primetime TV media, for example, um, where sort of multiple TV anchors are in, in the pockets or, or, or sort of spew the same sort of narratives as the government. Um, 
and together with this this entire machinery where they can control what is true it it gives them such power to you know make they make the most terrible of political decisions um to you know really sink the economy in some ways um and and yet convince a large proportion of the indian people that that everything is all right that that india is on its way to being the next world superpower i think that this also plays out particularly in the forms of social media that are very prevalent one of that being which an american context might not be that familiar with uh, is whatsapp and um whatsapp is something that a lot of indians uh, are using frequently multiple times a day and it's really conducive to spreading a lot of misinformation or fake information because of the easy ability to mass forward anything that you receive this has made it possible for the bjp to spread whatever message they want in a very rapid way and it's well known that the bjp has an it cell or an information technology cell that functions specifically with the purpose of gathering propaganda and disseminating it in a rapid way to get it to all of their supporters but also spread it way beyond the capacity of what we usually think about um A, a political party being able to access in such a short amount of time that's really kind of preceded their ability to reach the amount of people that they have in india through not just um their own propaganda but usually relying heavily on entirely fake information and disinformation um and like ram said a lot of that around the pandemic has been blaming the spread of the virus on muslim communities spreading false pictures or videos about of gatherings of muslims and saying look it's happening on purpose they're doing this to spread the virus they're the enemy that kind of rhetoric and and tactic is common and is only being magnified by this period of uh coronavirus where everyone's at home and online and consuming huge amounts of media. Yeah, and I would also say that it's like it, it is also particularly disturbing to see how um online communities that have already existed are are kind of expanding and weaponizing that kind of material as we've seen to um pathologize Muslims um and there are like so many different online accounts um and groups where like this kind of material is disseminated and and weaponized against individuals and organizations and that's just like kind of um increased during the pandemic and what about journalists who are anti-modi anti-bjp anti-hindutva like how are they and the media that they're putting out treated by state officials of India and by the public. Yeah, I I think it's a great question. Um and and I think sort of the response has really been a heavy-handed one. I think a good example to take is NDTV, which is New Delhi Television, that perhaps is one of the few mainstream media channels left that remains critical of the government. Um and so the government has used the income tax department to go after their 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 chairpersons to sort of freeze their assets um they've they've started boycotting their shows on tv so on an ndtv show no bjp um representatives will will come anymore and 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 i guess that's just one aspect a, a, a larger and, and more frightening thought is is really the ways in which dissent is being um is being threatened and there've been cases where journalists have been threatened others have been killed 
um, where sort of activists um, have really been bullied into silence. Um, and in, in many ways, the sort of political liberties that India enjoyed even 10 years ago, even if not perfect, are, are really quickly eroding at the moment. And it's interesting because this sort of effect obviously is being magnified right now, but it's been happening. And um, Kashmiri people have been pointing out that it's been happening, especially in Kashmir for decades now, where the most prominent newspapers or media outlets, whether it's the Kashmir Daily or um, Kashmir Today, I don't know if that's exactly the name of the newspaper or not, but um, for a long time have been losing funding if they publish news about dissent, if they publish uh, news about what's going on in terms of mismanagement of governance or state occupation. Um, All of those things have been heavily censored for a long time. And especially when the lockdown first began in Kashmir, all information in and out was shut down. I think it's a common tactic, especially of this regime, to be able to silence and and reduce the amount of pushback that they get by controlling the information that's going out about the actions of the government. Yeah, and Raman Shri, you might be able to speak to this more than I can, but um, there has also been in well, which is nothing new, but like in, in the incarceration of several activists and journalists. Um, I think there have been like at least three uh, well-known names in the past couple weeks and many more that have been happening like before this. Um, But that's also something that's very common. And I was like reflecting on this recently because I remembered that there was like one day or maybe even just a few hours um, in March right before our protest where our Twitter was briefly blocked in India and wasn't accessible. And I was just thinking that that is like the mildest manifestation of the censorship. And at its worst, we see it like resulting in so much violence and incarceration, which particularly during the pandemic can be really deadly. Um, So that's another thing that we're seeing at this moment. Just hearing all of you speak about this topic, it's really striking the differences between what the state is putting out there and what independent journalists are putting out there in regards to Muslims in India. Angelina and I have been reading statistics on the demographics of India, and the majority, 80% of the population, is Hindu, and Muslims make up roughly 14%. Muslims are also some of the most disadvantaged, underprivileged minorities in India, because aside from having to face Hindu vigilantism and anti-Muslim violence, They also have to face housing discrimination, and they tend to be less educated and less socioeconomically mobile than their Hindu counterparts. So I guess reading this from an outsider's point of view, it seems to me like all of this should point to the conclusion that Muslims are not a group that could pose as a serious threat to the nation, but they're frequently painted in state-sponsored media as very dangerous individuals who could bring about Indian national decline. So I was wondering, why do you think this is? Like, why does such a wide gap between the commonly pushed narrative and reality exist? I think that's really just, it's the power of, you know, of spreading a narrative that catches hold in a way that you allow a majority to to, to feel that it's a minority. Like a very prevalent term in India is this term of appeasement, where Parties on the far right accuse um, accuse parties in the center on the left of appeasing a Muslim minority, despite the fact, as as you guys mentioned, that 
Muslims are some of the most underprivileged groups in India. Um, and, and in many ways, again, I, I think we have to we have to maintain some sort of distance with what we know is empirical truth um, and understand that, you know, th- this whole machinery of, of spinning new truths is so powerful that despite what we might see as, for example, a need for affirmative action is instead spun in a way um, where Muslims are seen, um, in fact, as the opposite, as um, for example, as Shriya mentioned, they're seen as having far more kids than Hindus and, and, and therefore attempting this sort of demographic takeover of India. Um, they're also often seen as the narrative spread of them being sort of un- unclean in, in many ways, sort of almost like sexually threatening. Um, There's sort of very deep ties to masculinity um, in Hindutva. And I, I guess it's, it's really just a mark of how um, of how you're able to spin political narratives in a way that um, that 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 distance um, the the thought processes of people from these realities, um, and in many ways make people believe that a minority is in fact um, a, a discriminated against minority is somehow being offered more power than and, and than it deserves. And Ram, I know that you were born in the U.S., but you grew up in India and you call it your home. So in what ways have you seen India change as the country transitioned from being ruled by the Congress party and more left-wing groups to being ruled by the BJP? Uh, I won't pretend to be that much of an expert because a lot of it, a lot of these changes also happened when I was a lot younger, but I think there are a few things that have really that have really struck out at me. Um, I think just sort of just in terms of like a visual culture, um, there's so much more time on the road where you like on, on the streets in India where you see the color saffron sort of marked assertively and, and very visibly. Um, and, and saffron in many ways and the saffron flag in particular is sort of the flag of the Hindu Rashtra. It's, it's meant to stand for this nation for and of Hindus. Um, and in, in, for example, you see it on the back of taxis, um, on the back of rickshaws, uh, on top of people's homes or, or, or temples. Um, and I think apart from that, there's been, for example, this this new conception in, in what the Hindu man is supposed to be like. This this sort of a real emphasis on on a sort of macho masculinity. Um, and of course, in political discourse, um, there's, there's really this idea that, that Muslims and, and, and lower caste Hindus um, in, in some ways have been, have got more than they deserved, um, do not, are, are not first class citizens of the country. Um, and I think particularly over the past few years, that sort of rhetoric that was perhaps more subtle, more being more subtly spread has really come out into the open to the extent that you often have family members, you know, saying things that they would certainly not have said 10 years ago. And yet there they are, sort of some of your, the, the people you love most in the world saying um, some of the most terrible things about their neighbors. Um, and in, in many ways, that's been a very, very difficult thing to, to deal with and 
to, to just to comprehend how um how sort of ideas of fraternity and of interreligious harmony that that often you know were, were celebrated in india even if they were not even if they were not followed through fully have really eroded um and made space for really quite terrible vitriol i'm really i i, I want to follow up on what you said about this shift in viewing masculinity i feel like that's so interesting like in what ways has that come up in media and maybe in like day-to-day conversations you have with people? I think a good way of thinking that perhaps is looking at is looking at like common media representations either of the ideal man or of the ideal male deity. I think sort of traditionally a lot of Hindu deities were pictured with, you know, chubby cheeks, um, sort of no six pack for sure, often often effeminate in certain ways. Um, and there was there's just been a way in which now if you look at if you look at a uh, uh, an Indian serial that has um, Indian deities, they're suddenly you know six packed. Um, you know they they they're sort of they they epit- epitomize this sort of new harsh masculine self. Um, and a lot of this is rooted in ideologies of the RSS. Um, the, the the basic unit of the RSS is called a shakha or a branch. Um, and in many ways, those resemble physical training centers where this idea of the rejuvenation of the male body politic is closely linked to rejuvenating India as a Hindu nation. Um, I think it's also deeply tied into discourses of how Hindus sort of understood them or, or claimed that they were more peace-loving, more feminine than their Muslim counterparts, but then that that uh, Muslims sort of took advantage of this, and now the Hindu Hindu man is required to awake to a sort of new form where their their sort of their new physical reshaping is central to also reshaping this new nation um, that is by and for Hindus and and therefore not by extension one where minorities um, are welcome. And Ram, have you been to any demonstrations in India, like during breaks? Um, what were they like and what were some of your observations slash thoughts slash feelings while you were attending those? Oh, so I, I did participate in the sort of nationwide protests that uh, were on since last December. Um, and in many ways, those were some of the, those those were quite incredible experiences because um, there were moments of such unity, such such selflessness, and 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 such, I guess, courage and 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 bravery, um, in which you saw sort of an, an entirely new class of people, but but also a class of people that combined everybody, all sorts of genders, all sorts of religions, all sorts of classes, um, all sort of came up to the streets in a very organic manner to protect certain ideas of India that that all of us believed in. Um, and it was really a moment of of hope and energy that in many ways made it made it feel like the beginning of something something new. Um, that in, in many ways, the beginning of of this uh, a sort of comeback against sort of various incremental 
um, policies that that had been underway that had really threatened basic ideals we held dear. And so in, in, in many ways, I feel like this moment is being one where me and so many of my friends around me were, would perhaps never self-identify as activists, even, even six months ago, uh, but almost political circumstances have made us into activists, I feel. It's almost felt like, you know, a dam broke and, and there has been no other option. Now, you know, the, the very ideas we hold dear are so existentially challenged that, mm-hmm. that inaction is just not an option anymore. And the demonstrations that you've been to or have participated in, what has been the government's response? And also, like, how have those demonstrations been depicted in the media? Yeah, I think, again, this this is really varied across the country. Um, back, back home, I'm from South India. Most of the demonstrations were pretty peaceful. The, South India, in general, um, although this is changing, does not enjoy, the BJP does not enjoy the same sort of support in the South as it does in the North. Um, in many ways, there isn't similar sort of police regimes under place. So um, the demonstrations were sort of, were taken as you would hope they would be taken in a democratic country, in that there were police around us, but there was always a lot of respect, a lot of the idea that we have a right to protest that unfortunately was not respected in other parts of India. Um, I think often we don't even know what has happened in Kashmir because of the lockdown, but the stories that have emerged have not been good. Um, And in particular in Delhi, which is uh, in some ways like the political capital of India, their sort of protesting students were met with a lot of violence. Um, I have a lot of friends who've told me that either they or their their other friends have been detained or put in jail. Um, A lot of people have been uh, sort of arrested and have gone missing. Um, And in, in many ways, often this happened with the support of the police. Um, and with the sort of tacit silence that that allowed this sort of violence um, to take place from people in power at the top. Um, and so in, in many ways, they, a lot of students, particularly Muslim students who were protesting, and in many ways what these protests saw were young Muslims coming and speaking without political political intermediaries and in really powerful ways, they've often really been targeted. They were targeted in December and January, and they've been continued to be targeted even during the pandemic. Hmm. It's awful that so many young Muslim student protesters are being targeted, but hopefully that there are so many people of so many different backgrounds and faiths showing up to these demonstrations indicates that there's another grassroots movement gaining momentum to counter fascism and aggressive Hindutva. So a question to all three of you before we transition to talking about your organization, Students Against Hindutva Ideology, or SAHI. India is frequently referred to as the world's largest democracy, but on SAHI's website, it says that India is in the grips of one of the largest oldest and wealthiest fascist networks on the globe, led by the RSS and BJP. How do you reconcile these two images of India? And what do you have to say to outsiders who think that India really is the world's most populous democracy? I think a 
fair amount of people would agree with the statement that India is no longer a democracy. Whether or not that statement is true, the facts on the ground, as a lot of people would say, is just that while there are secular socialist democratic values in the constitution, those aren't necessarily translated to the same kinds of rights for citizens, particularly as we've been discussing India's minorities. This can be seen on multiple levels, whether it's from the uh, home minister and prime minister's rhetoric to the Supreme Court's decisions that often marginalize or Um, ignore the rights of certain groups to just day-to-day rule of law and whether or not the uh, rampant lynchings of Muslims and violence against minority communities is ever accounted for. Um, Particularly, I think, the fact that the Article 370, which was the uh, part of the Constitution that gave Kashmir certain um, rights of self-governance, was abrogated without democratic consensus, without consensus from the people of Kashmir, is one of the first signs of the idea of India being a functional democracy not being true. But then after that, you get policies like the CAA and NRC, which kind of signaled that even across the country as a whole, um, people's citizenship uh, was being put at stake and their ability to participate in the democracy was being put at stake, which I would argue means that it's not the kind of functional democracy that we, we would expect. Now, of course, you can criticize democracies across the world for having various levels of backslide, um, not following through on what's actually written in the constitution in terms of rule of law, etc. So I don't think this is necessarily something that's unique to India, but what is unique to India is the perception of the ruling party and the way that the ruling party has been very successfully able to garner majority support while still pushing through policies that are often fascist and blatantly Islamophobic. Um, As it says on our website, uh, we find it important to point out that it's one of the largest, oldest, but also wealthiest networks because um, the BJP and the RSS and the Sangh Parivar as a whole have wide-ranging connections um, across not just India, but the diaspora and have been very able to successfully fund their operations um, and keep functioning as a majoritarian party uh, without a a coherent sort of opposition beyond the Congress party. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons that without um, a consolidated opposition or even an an option when voting that seems to be credible and has a foothold in terms of grassroots, local and state organizing, it means that there is no real democratic choice even for voters, most likely um, because the BJP is so powerful, wealthy and wide arching, that is likely your only only option or um, the most powerful option simply because of the way the cards are stacked. Yeah. And just to answer this question, um, actually, I, I am an outsider myself in many ways. Um, and I guess to other outsiders who think that India is really the most populous democracy in the world, I would just say to look more carefully it does not take a lot to just see how some of the long term patterns um, are revealing a lot of the things we've been talking about. And as Shreya mentioned, like this is I'm still trying to think through this relationship, but there's definitely some similarities between the way that the U.S. functions and what's going on in India right now. Um, We see here how a democracy in name does not like necessarily translate into practice and how even being called a democracy or calling oneself a democracy can be used as a safeguard against criticism. Um, 
so yeah, I would just say to look more carefully because it's, it, it, it is, there are a lot of like ways that the government has tried to conceal um, the fascist network that it has been developing. Um, but in other ways, it's also like very apparent. And I think it's just important to do research beyond um, dominant narratives that are trying to convince not just people in India, but people around the world um, otherwise. I think Shriya and Lakshmi covered it really well. I, I guess I guess this is also a question that goes beyond the BJP and goes beyond Hindutva, in that for 70 years, India has had universal adult franchisee. India has had sort of an independent electoral commission that, you know, maintained free and fair elections. But I think even then, the translating free and fair elections into the sort of democracies that we'd like to see um, has never really was has was not always realized. I think what you've seen now, though, is um, is is not just uh, is not just a failure of democracy, but a direct attack on democracy. Um, to the extent that to the extent that that basic institutional protections, I think we've we've spoken of them before of the media, um, of the judiciary. Uh, are, are are really fundamentally threatened in a way that, you know, political scientists, for example, speak of this idea of like a democratic erosion. Um, and unfortunately, India is one of the countries they're pointing to at the moment. So now let's transition into discussing the organization that you all founded, which is called Students Against Hindutva Ideology, or Sahi. Can you talk us through the process of creating Sahi? Like, when did you get the idea and how did you turn it from a group of a few students into this national inter-university coalition? What were your goals and also what's the impact you hope to have? So I can talk a little bit about this. Um, So he started as just an open letter initially. It was an open letter written to uh, American Congress asking for House Resolution 745 to be passed. That was Representative Jayapal's resolution advocating for a formal condemnation of um, not just what's happening in Kashmir, but also uh, the Modi government's general treatment of uh, Muslim and other minorities in India. Um, And that kind of got a very surprising response. Various South Asian organizations from uh, undergraduate and graduate institutions across the country signed on in support. And we realized that we had sort of built a network of a bunch of first and second generation, as well as Indian origin students who wanted to take action from the diaspora in some way. Um, that's where the Holy Against Hindutva, um, a Holy Against Hindutva campaign was born. Um, the idea of the campaign was to take a stance against um, Hindutva from the position and, and privilege that so many of us have to not be directly touched by what's happening in India, but I think um, still wanting to stand behind those who are protesting on the front lines and putting their lives on the line. So the vision and goal behind it really was just initially as a protest campaign in solidarity with those who were resisting in India. Um, From there, I think the fact that we established um, networks at so many different universities, around over 25 different universities were involved. We had demonstrations at 15 campuses. Um, We realized that 
that was something that we could take forward to create a sort of long-standing institution um, that could exist as uh, a resistance against Hindutva from the diaspora, particularly because the diaspora has been so often complicit in rise of powers um, for the RSS and the BJP, whether that's through financial backing or um, propaganda, such as the Howdy Modi um, rally that happened in Houston, um, and things that have kind of been a staple of diaspora South Asian organizing include being sympathetic to more right-wing forces. I think there's a shift, though, when it comes to younger generations, and we hope in the future to continue building on that shift and creating a space for people not just of South Asian origin, but anyone on college campuses to engage with this and learn more about this issue that we think is really important. Um, Right now, our team has split off into establishing campus chapters across various universities, but also internally solidifying strategy for the long term, whether that's researching and documenting um, things that we find important and um, under-focused on when it comes to Indian politics or um, social media campaigns or um, continuing direct advocacy whenever we are able to do that after hopefully whenever this pandemic passes. Um, Basically just trying to use whatever tactics that are available to us to continue supporting um, the work that's really just going on on the front lines in India. Um, as the you know resistance continues, uh, a lot of places like Shaheen Bagh, which was the iconic vision of resistance against uh, the CIA and NRC, have been shut down by the pandemic. That was a multi-week sit-in um, that was shut down because of current circumstances. A lot of that resistance now is being continued through online and virtual tactics, and we hope to sort of support that and build on that uh, in whatever way that we can from overseas. Yeah, and just to echo um, something that Shreya said, it was really, there were a couple like different letters floating around Yale that made us realize that this could turn into something that exceeded a one-time protest, because even though that was like the initial vision, um, it was really important for us to establish some kind of framework um that will that would set the stage for the kind of sustained work from the diaspora that a lot of other south asian organizations have been doing actually but um as we've kind of alluded to south asian diasporic like second generation and third generation people aren't always um necessarily participating in south asian politics i identify with that group i like am still learning so much about the about south asian political um, organizing work. And and we also wanted this to be something that can connect to other struggles in the diaspora. Um, at least on college campuses, I've noticed that like a lot of the time South Asian students don't always show up for other movements, other struggles. And we thought that this could be a, a good space to bring in South Asian students to not just engage with South Asian politics, but also like political organizing in general. Um, we thought that like young people and college campuses would be a really good place to to spark that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so who exactly was in that original group or like who were the original founders of Sahi? Well, it started as just me um, really in the beginning when it was writing an open letter um, and a couple of my friends and I who no longer are really affiliated with the organization uh, decided that we wanted to write an open letter to Congress. From there, um, 
Lakshmi was one of the first few people that I worked with um, to build out the initial steps of the organization. And then once we got back on campus, because the organization was really started back in December during winter break, um, I wrote the open letter while I was back in India. But thankfully, um, there were so many people who were working on this during that time and a lot of organizing going on in various student spaces that um, I was able to network with and connect with. And we built a whole entire team and it started as a small team sort of based at Yale, which included Ram and Lakshmi and Iman and uh, Saket and others who aren't here um, on this call, but are still part of our executive board until now. And then expanded then because we didn't want this to be something that was just Yale focused or organized at one campus to include members from across the various campuses that were involved with um, Students Against Hindutva ideology. We transitioned from, uh, we actually went through a couple of name transitions initially since we were just running a campaign rather than an organization. We were just focused on the Aholi Against Hindutva campaign and then decided to sort of establish an organization that could exist as a long-term institution. So that work really involved so many people, um, including the people on this call, but also a lot of people who are still on, on our executive board and our advisory. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I know you guys put in so, so much work into this. And now that it's such a big organization and like you said, it's 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 present in so many different universities across the country. Like, yeah, I really applaud you guys for all of the amazing work that you've done. Um, so a question directed more towards Lakshmi and Shriya. So you guys don't live in India right now. Um, Lakshmi, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but why was it so important for you guys to act and do something about the situation in India and create Sahi when from an outsider's perspective, the situation isn't directly affecting you guys? Um, yeah, so I, yeah, just to clarify a little bit, um, my, my dad's family is from India, both my parents were born here. Um, so I identify as like half Indian American on my mom's side, I'm Colombian American and German Czechs and Americans. So it's like a lot of stuff going on. Um, <laughs> But I think uh, the fact that Hindutva leans on the diaspora so much as a source of economic and ideological support um, seemed like, I, well, first of all, I think just observing from afar what was going on, um, even then it was like very difficult to think about, not think about this all the time for me, um, especially like in the first few months, this kind of consumed all my thoughts and, and acting seemed like the only way forward. Um, and it also seemed like because, as I mentioned, the diaspora is a, is a big source of support for this. this because we're here, we have the opportunity to use our privilege to disrupt um, that network, especially coming from, I come from an upper caste Hindu family on my dad's side. Um, and the distance has, at least for me, been a challenge because I there's like a linguistic distance and like a physical distance. So it's been a learning process, but um, I think that's why it felt so urgent to act. And just for me personally, I uh, come from like a lineage of activism because my grandfather was a political activist in Colombia and in the U.S. with Latinx groups. So I am more familiar with Latinx um, American organizing. Um, and I think that coming to this work has allowed me to learn a lot more about uh, South Asian American activist uh, groups, including DRUM, a New York-based organization, um, Equality Labs, Youth Solidarity Summer. So that's been another thing to plug into through this work that has been that has felt very empowering um, and I think has 
has allowed our coalition to grow even more. Yeah, um, I echo a lot of what Lakshmi said, which is just that um, it has given me an opportunity to learn from so many people in this space and um, understand what the communities that we want to engage with are um, looking for and what we can do to help. And I think all that has been extremely valuable for me. Uh, I was born in Ahmedabad and I was back during winter break um, in Ahmedabad. And that is uh, actually where um, Narendra Modi was originally a chief minister of the state and then before becoming prime minister. And I think there's a huge base of support um, in the region that I come from in India and just being around so much family and friends who I loved and respect and value um, and hearing them talk about the Modi government in uh, such a I guess, a uh, positive way was really jarring for me and made me think about uh, what I could do from the position that I'm in to start a conversation and engage with people who I had disagreements with, but also um, do something in a moment that I felt like it was really extremely important for everyone who had the ability to do something without facing violence or silence um, and, and being silenced by the government or being in physical danger to use that privilege and position and, and safety to sort of support the people who are putting their lives on the line. I remember being back in Ahmedabad um, and the place where I'm born is actually very close to the Gandhi ashram um, where Mahatma Gandhi lived for quite a while and launched his peaceful resistance movement. And I remember visiting and the day that I visited, there was pro-CAA, pro-NRC propaganda plastered across the outside of the ashram. And I remember that being a very stark and upsetting image. Um, and that was the day that I decided to write the open letter because it sort of felt like seeing that triggered. Um, the idea that at that point silence was being complicit and not doing anything was being complicit in things that I thought were clearly immoral and so many people have been fighting for, uh, fighting against for so long. Absolutely. And you talked previously about how Sahi started as a singular campaign, a holy against Hindutva. And a holy against Hindutva was one of your biggest marches, which was on March 5th of this year. Why was it important for you to protest on Holi? And what do you have to say to the people who might argue that you shouldn't have been protesting on such a sacred holiday? Uh, well, a couple of things. I think there's a long history of using not just festivals, but um, art as a political statement in Indian spaces. However, we are very conscious of the fact and have tried to, in in the lead up to the demonstrations and the aftermath, to make it very clear that we were in no way protesting Holi, but rather using what has often been a flashpoint of South Asian communities um, and, and especially on campus organizing and using it for a political purpose that we think is really important. Um, as it stands uh, in universities, Holi is a day where not just South Asians, but a lot of um, Americans and people of non-South Asian descent engage with the festival. And uh, we thought that it would be a good opportunity to talk about the issues that we think are important instead of just for forgetting them, especially in a time, I mean, the the March 5th demonstrations happened right after the Delhi pogroms, which were horrific examples of violence against Muslim communities right in the capital of India. And at that time, it seemed very clear that it wasn't just any other period in life, but other a 
pretty terrifying shift in what had been going on politically. And a lot of Indian communities, South Asian communities, were talking about this, concerned about this, engaging with this. And we thought that it was an important time to use whatever position or power or privilege we had to continue that conversation. That's essentially why we decided on using the day of Holi to have these demonstrations. And Ron can elaborate on this. Yeah, I guess just a tiny thing I'd add was that often the, like, what, what we were thinking was about was consciously claiming a discursive space where Hindus or that that would distinguish between Hindus and Hindutva, or that would say that Hindus can speak, can and should speak out against Hindutva. Um, I think, particularly in India, but in the diaspora as well, there's there's often been an idea that that opposing Hindutva makes you anti-Hindu. I think a lot of the a lot of the sort of a lot of the the responses we got were being were, were posing us as Hindu-phobic organizations, which has been sort of a continuous refrain of right-wing groups where sort of critique of a political ideology um, or critique of, you know, a particular form of, of, of political operating has, has been claimed to be critique of a religion um, and, and, and silenced. And so in many ways we felt that, that, that claiming this discursive space and, 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 and claiming to speak, at least some of us, as, as, as Hindus, um, also sent out a statement by saying that you don't merely need to be Muslim or, or personally affected by this, but but more merely that you know you needed you needed to 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 have empathy um, and, and and to care for what was going on and understand that it was wrong on so many levels. Yeah, I would just echo like the fact that Hindu phobia has been something that's been leveraged against like us and so many other um, vocal critiques of of Hindutva. Um, but as Shriya said, I think a lot of this was about visibility. We wanted to make visible um, this force that is very much present in the diaspora, but may not necessarily be um, apparent to even people within our own community. So I think it was. I was thinking about it as just like us trying to make visible um, something that isn't often discussed. And Holi is as Shreya said, like something that people think about all the time, like that's just like something that everyone recognizes. And so we were trying to make this conversation something that was visible and recognizable to people who may not have been as familiar with it before. Um, Yeah. So moving on to the next question, you guys have obviously done some really, really great work with Sahi. I attended your Aholi Against Tinutba protest in March, and that was really amazing too go to and see. So can you tell our listeners about some next steps you're hoping to take with the organization? And also what effect do you hope your work in the US will have on an institutional level in India? And I mean, clearly, you guys are doing some powerful work here in the in the US and are making waves in India since your Twitter was blocked there for a couple of days. But yeah, how do you envision trying to impact India? And What's going on there on an institutional and systemic level? I think I think one way, of course, is 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 to understand that particularly today, um, institutions we set up in the U.S. have have a significant impact on those in India. Um, I think, sort of, in in many ways, we both. Um, we're both wary of, but in in some ways also 
want to emulate the way in which the right has mobilized for their cause. Um, I think as much as we might have disdain for the, for their political values, what we've seen is that the diaspora among the Hindu right has mobilized money and resources um, and political support in a way the left has not. Uh, and that has often you know, counted in significant ways. I think a good example is that during the 2019 um, parliamentary elections in India, the BJP spent 20 times as much as all other parties combined in the elections. A lot of that money came from the U.S. Um, a lot of that was facilitated by support um, in the U.S. And so in many ways, we both want to want to combat that, critique that, but also in many ways find, create networks of support um, for Indians um, who we want, whose voices we want to amplify for people who are doing um, such terrible work, uh, such terrific work, terrific work under terrible circumstances back in India. I think I also want to stress on a sort of internal development that's also taking place. I think um, I think the idea of causing broad institutional change in India is is something that. Um, but we have various theories of change. We're still experimenting with them. We're still trying to push them further. But I also think in many ways what, what we hope to achieve is sort of um, to achieve a form of transnational translation and solidarity that will allow people like Shriya, Lakshmi, and I to, um, to devote you know, our own lives or parts of our lives two issues in India, and, and I don't mean that in, in a trivial sense. I mean that in the sense that um, that in many ways what I've seen is, is as we've taken more members on, we've had so many people take, take like real investment in India, um, in working with India for India um, while in the U.S. Um, in a way that that is often, I guess, an, an underseen achievement or, or an underseen way of creating change. In, in many ways, we want to, um, we, we want to stake a, a claim um, to having an engaged diaspora that, you know, often perhaps even physically returns to India, understands the country better, understands its politics better, um, and that engages with it, you know, critically and passionately and selflessly. Um, and in many ways, that itself is an institutional change, that if you have the one million um, plus Indian Americans, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but millions of Indian Americans who look back at India um, in a fundamentally different way, um, do not sort of look at it critically, do not, I guess, blindly um, support discriminatory and authoritarian policies, but instead, um, but instead understand the privilege that that has made them successful. Um, perhaps understand um, that that you know a, a connection to the diaspora does not merely mean you know certain you know ethnic clothes or food you wear or songs you listen to, but a deep and systematic engagement with a country that, that that's a big part of you. Yeah, I would echo everything that Ram just said. Um, and just to pick up on another thing you mentioned about like transnational solidarity, that feels like such a daunting task in some ways, but I, I think what he just mentioned um, 
practicing solidarity as like sustained engagement rather than just like one event, um, as we said earlier, and making sure that this is like a long-term thing is really important. Um, especially in a time in social media when it's so easy for people to like take a picture of themselves at a protest or share something and think that that's enough. And it's in people have different commitments, but this is a space where we do hope that some kind of like vision of solidarity as like a practice of like listening and acting over a long period of time um, can be established. And I think we're also going through the process right now of just like making sure that all that we have people across the country who are interested. We're making sure we're providing them with like the framework to establish cha- captus, ca- campus chapters, excuse me. Um, because that's something we definitely like want to make sure this is sustained. And uh, we're also thinking moving forward about like being mindful of the makeup of our board. We're hoping to expand and make sure that we're bringing in more like Muslim students, Dalit Bajan students, Adivasi indigenous voices into our organizing um, and making sure that we're like centering the lived experiences of the communities that we want to support. Um, so, yeah. All of that sounds so great. And are there any ways that the listeners can help support Sahi and what you're doing? And where can they find you if they want to reach out to you guys? And any last things that Sahi is planning that the listeners have to look forward to? All of that is, is super exciting and great. Um, we can be reached at studentsagainsthindutvaideology.org, and I think we have pretty exciting plans coming up. Um, we've worked on establishing a couple of different internal teams, uh, like I mentioned, a research team, but also a legislative action team that's focused on different policy goals we can set, whether that's at the local, state, or national level, um, particularly in the sense of getting representatives and elected officials to uh, make some sort of formal statement or condemnation about what's happening in India. We also are establishing chapters so people who want to get involved can get in touch and work with us through whatever um, institution that they're at. Um, And uh, we have plans to conduct various webinars and informational um, events that help people engage and keep learning and help our whole team keep learning about um, the issues that we're engaging with, uh, which will be open to the public and et cetera. Um, I don't know if I'm missing anything, Ram, Lakshmi. Maybe I would also add that um, that getting involved doesn't doesn't require being Indian or being Indian American. I, I think in in many ways what 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 we look at is a commitment to social justice. Um, and and I think sort of all of us really feel that this is this is not just a process where you know, we are trying to have an impact on India. And and I, I think just it's important to state just how difficult actual institutional change is. It's 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 a plan we're we're going towards, but it's also really a sort of internal process of learning. I think Shri and Lakshmi have spoken about learning and, and I have to say that it's the same thing for me as well. I think living in India does not um has hardly meant that that I, I know um I, I I know understand the country very well. It's it's we're we're all taking in in a process of engaging critically and and with humility. Um and and I think as long as we take as long as anyone is willing to take that commitment to social justice, um and is willing to take that critical thinking and humility into their action, should will find a place here. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'd also add if anyone is looking for like ways to just learn more about what is going on in India, we have a resources page on our website. Um, but a few like organizations and um, outlets that have been really helpful for me, I'd recommend. As I said earlier, Equality Labs is a wonderful organization. Um, the Wire is a great outlet, and Feminism in India is also a really great um, website to learn more about this issue. Awesome. Lakshmi, thank you so much for sharing those resources with us. We'll definitely put those on our social media so that our listeners can have quick and easy access to them. And Shriya, Lakshmi, and Ram, that's all the questions we have prepared. But at the end of every episode, we like to do something fun with our guests. Usually it's rapid fire questions. But since we've got a bigger group today, we thought we could play two truths and a lie. So we know that we didn't get to touch upon some other aspects of your lives in this episode as we normally try to do on Homecoming. So hopefully we and our listeners can get to know you all a little bit more with two truths and a lie. And I can go first uh, just to give you all some time to think. So I'm a vegetarian. I was featured in a movie trailer and I don't know how to ride a bike. I'm gonna go with vegetarian. I, I feel like I can definitely see you being like in a movie trailer. I don't know why. Yeah, I agree with Lakshmi. I think the vegetarian's the lie. You actually got it completely right. Um, I don't know how to ride a bike yet. It's something that's been on my summer bucket list for a lot of summers now, but I never seem to have enough time to do everything that I want to do during the summer. Uh, Does anyone else want to go next? Or I can go next if you guys are still thinking. I can go. um, Okay. Um, I have flown a plane before. I am a cat person. And the fewest number of steps I've taken in one day during quarantine is 144. I feel like the the fewest number of steps one is too specific to be a lie. Yeah, I think that too. I, I think you being a cat person is a lie. I agree with Rob. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're right. That was I, I'm so glad I committed to lies for these. I was I, I was very committed though. I like went through my health app and went and I was like I was hoping it wouldn't get below two hundred, but I don't know what I was doing that day. I guess I just like walked around the kitchen and that was pretty much it. Yeah, I'm a dog person. Alright, I can go next. So first my favorite ice cream flavor is coffee. I don't like rom-coms, and I was on my high school's varsity tennis team. Is it that you don't like rom-coms? Yeah, I'm going to go with that as well. I'm going to go with that one, too. (laughs) Uh, I actually was not on my high school's varsity tennis team. I don't like like (laughs) (laughs) rom-coms. Shreya Ram? Um, Okay. First... Uh, I am a black belt in Taekwondo. Um, second, I was on my high school's varsity cross-country team. And third, I once almost drowned in the Dead Sea. Wow. I'm going to go with the second because I feel like we've had conversations before about how we hate sports. I, I feel like it's really difficult to drown in the Dead Sea, but maybe because it's difficult, it's like a memorable thing that you remember. But I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna ha- try and have physics on my side and go with the Dead Sea. 
Okay, that's so interesting. You both, so both of those were the truths. Um, I'm not a black belt in Taekwondo. I am one belt away from a black belt, and I never finished. I did almost drown in the Dead Sea, and I was for a brief period, just one semester, on the varsity cross country team, (laughs) and I hated it. (laughs) Okay, um, so let's see. I I can't watch horror movies. I like the color red. And the third one is I don't I didn't own a pair of jeans until I came to Yale. Hmm. I feel like it's the red one. Hmm. hmm. I feel like it's the jeans. Yeah, I'm gonna say that because you 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 like messed up the wording a little bit at the beginning of that one. So I feel like that <laughs> one is a lie. <laughs> so the, the, the falsehood is that I like the color red. I do not. What do you have against the color red? I think, A, um, in terms of food, I cannot eat anything red. Maybe it's because I don't eat meat. I'm a vegan. Um, But I think there are also some Yale loyalties there. that (laughs) I've been wearing a lot of blue and no red. I'm just looking at your, like, Facebook profile picture right now, and you're wearing a red shirt. So I'm like, (laughs) no, Yeah, that to be fair, that hasn't changed in years. So that is the end of our episode. Ram, Lakshmi, Shriya, thank you guys so, so much for coming onto the podcast. This is the biggest group we've had on an episode so far, but I think it was pretty successful. Um, You all just had such insightful responses and I know that I learned a lot from you all and I'm sure our listeners learned just as much as we did. And these are topics that rarely make it into American news. So thank you all again for the amazing work that you're doing, bringing awareness to what's happening politically and culturally in India, connecting people from all over the South Asian diaspora and offering ways that all of us can engage with the issue. And really recording with all of you has just been another reminder that you can learn so much from your peers and that people are just such amazing resources. So honestly, again, thank you guys so much for coming on to Homecoming. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, Homecoming listeners, it's your girl Angel Rena here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. Just wanted to let you guys know that you can find Zahi's website at studentsagainsthindutvaideology.org and that we'll also be posting this link and other resources that we mentioned in the episode on Homecoming social media at Homecoming Pod on Instagram and Facebook. And since we've already reached our limit on SoundCloud, we didn't realize we'd eventually have to pay on the platform, but we won't be publishing episodes on SoundCloud anymore. But you can still listen to and subscribe to Homecoming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and so many other platforms. Lastly, I wanted to let you all know that Emily will no longer be a co-host on the podcast, so I wish her luck and It'll be me hosting for the foreseeable future, but don't worry, I'm still going to upload every Saturday, and I have so, so many great ideas. I'm really excited um, for the future of Homecoming and for all the episodes I'll be putting out. So thank you all for your support, and see you next week.